Good evening. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. You'll find your place there in verse 19. While you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. Well, anytime a deadline approaches, there's always a sense of urgency. And I think uh, you can especially sense it when you think back to the time in your life when you were taking examinations, whether that was in high school or whether it was for some kind of qualification or certification that you were trying to achieve in your life. You took these examinations, which likely were timed, and at some point in the course of the test, the proctor would say, you have so much time left, and there was always that rush of adrenaline, that sense of urgency that attended that warning. And yet, there's also a sense of hopeful anticipation, I think. Hopeful anticipation that soon the test would be over. And with that, you'd have some time to rest and relax, at least while you waited the outcome of it. Well, as we come to First John chapter 2, we're going to see that John would have us understand that we are in the midst of a great test, if you will. We're in the midst of something like one of those examinations. and We are nearing the end of it. He doesn't tell us that to make us worry, but to give us a sense of urgency and also a sense of encouragement, to encourage us that, yes, indeed, the end is coming soon, and that, for Christians, ought to encourage us. And so as you find your place in 1 John chapter 2, here in verse 18, that is, would you follow along with me as I read? Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true, is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us wisdom this evening, that you would give us understanding, that we might hear your word and that we might believe it, that we might receive it with joy, with faith, and plant it in our hearts. Father, we know that we do stand in the last hour, and the end of all things is near, and yet that reality is a source of great encouragement to us, Lord. Let it be so in our lives. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we talk about the last hour, I want to talk about the hours. That is, the hours as John treats them in his various writings. See, John uses this word, hour, quite a bit in his gospel and in his writings. And it doesn't always refer to the same thing, but it does refer to the same category of things. Let me explain, and I'll explain it by giving you a few different references. In John chapter 2, verse 4, for instance, Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. And in that context, his mother has just asked him, or just brought to him a problem. There's, some, uh, there's a wedding going on, and there's uh, no more wine left. And he says, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And again, in John 4, verse 21, we read, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And a little later, but the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. These words Jesus spoke to the woman at the well as He was explaining to her the true nature of worship. And in this case, He used the word hour to refer to a different hour. In the first case, He was speaking about His own hour coming. In this case, He was speaking about an hour that was coming for her and for all of God's people. Again, in John 5, 25, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That's in verse 28. So you see there's another hour that is figured there, one where the dead will be raised. And this hour actually has, in a sense, two comings. One at His crucifixion, when some who were dead were really raised, but ultimately in a final climactic fulfillment at the resurrection. Again and again throughout John's Gospel, I won't read every single instance, there are these references to various hours that are coming. In some cases, Jesus refers to His own hour. He had an hour in which He would die on the cross. That is the reference when He says, My hour has not yet come. In another case, He refers to the promise that God had made in times of old that a day would come when He would pour out His Spirit, as we read about and heard uh, from the book of Acts a few weeks ago. That day, that hour, He says, that is coming when God's worshipers will not be those who worship in Jerusalem in the temple, but they will be those who worship in spirit and in truth. And yet he can speak about another hour, an hour at the very end, that will come when the dead will be raised. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus also can speak about an hour that is coming, not for his own suffering, but for the suffering of his disciples. In the upper room before he went to the cross, he frequently spoke this way to them. And he used this analogy in John 16, 21. He said, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, the hour of suffering, the hour of difficulty, the hour of trial. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And that became an illustration in his teaching of what the disciples were to expect in the hour 
that was coming for them. An hour of difficulty, an hour of trial, an hour that would require them to endure and to persevere. And yet an hour that would, when it concluded, would bring in an everlasting joy and everlasting rest. And so you see that this term hour has a, a, a dynamic quality to it. It can mean uh, a number of, it can refer to a number of different things in John's writings. And yet it always has this same kind of sense that it's looking forward to some kind of coming promise, some kind of fulfillment, some kind of uh, something that's expected on the near horizon that is marked both at the same time by suffering and judgment and salvation. There is judgment that comes with these hours, and there is salvation that comes with these hours. And so here in 1 John chapter 2, John would have us understand that we are living in the last hour. We are in the midst of the last of these hours. Now when we hear that language, we often think of the time that immediately precedes the end. We look forward and we think there will, that John must be speaking about the, something like the last days, you see. We use that same language, last days or last hour. This is a future event, but not our own present existence. And yet here it's very clear that John is telling these Christians in 1 John that this the time in which they live and the time in which we live as well is the last hour. How can John say this? How does he know that it's the last hour? What is the sign that indicates to him that we are living in the last hour? The answer that he gives us is found in the coming of many antichrists. You see, what John says here is, children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, to understand this idea that Antichrist is coming, it's helpful if we turn back a few pages in our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because there we see something similar in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. We see Paul's teaching about the coming of the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord, similar to the phrase, the last hour, refers to a day that is coming, a day of God's judgment, when God will visit His judgment upon those who reject Him. And it also refers to the day of salvation for those who trust Him. And throughout biblical history, there are many days of the Lord. The day of the Lord could refer to the judgment that came upon Israel when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The day of the Lord can refer to Christ, the day of Christ's death on the cross. But ultimately, we look forward to a final day of the Lord when Christ returns and He judges the living and the dead. And this is what Paul is talking about here. And the problem in Thessalonica is that they had heard some false reports that the day of the Lord had already come, that they, they kind of missed it. And they were a bit unsettled by this. So Paul writes here in verse 1 of chapter 2, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. And then here Paul gives them the way in which they know that the day of the Lord has come. Or put another way, the way they know that the day of the Lord has not come. 
Some things must precede the coming of the day of the Lord. And he's going to list some of those for them. In verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And this seems to be a reference to a great apostasy, a great departure from the faith of many Christians. That the rebellion must come first, and then, and the man of lawlessness must be revealed. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. You see, we don't need to, we're, we're, tonight we won't go into every single detail of the test, text before us in 2 Thessalonians. Our focus is on 1 John. But you see what Paul is saying is, you know that the day of the Lord cannot yet come. Because something must come before the day of the Lord, namely the coming of the man of lawlessness, the one who we also call Antichrist, the one who sets himself up in the place of God and takes, exalts himself as though he were a God, the one who sets himself up in opposition to the one true God. He must first come. And then the day of the Lord, when Christ brings judgment to that man of lawlessness and all who follow his ways. But Paul, a little later on in verse 8, says this, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I skipped down too far. I'm sorry. Verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And the point here in verse 7 is that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in Paul's time, but the day of the Lord, when that Antichrist will be judged, is still yet to come. In other words, one already sees the sign in Paul's day. One of the first letters that he wrote, these two letters of the Thessalonians, two of the first letters he wrote, even then, that mystery of lawlessness is already at work in their time, and so it is with us. Even if the man of lawlessness, the man who is, is marked by this quality of, of opposing God's ways and God's word and God's will, even if he has not yet come, the archetypical one, the final climactic one has not yet come, there are many like him who have come. You see, Paul is essentially then saying something quite similar to what John tells us in 1 John chapter 2. You have heard that Antichrist was coming. You have heard that the man of lawlessness is coming. And so now I tell you, many Antichrists have come. Or the mystery of lawlessness is at work in our midst. And so it is in our day too. Just as it was for John, so it is for us. We already see that same character, that same quality that we will expect in a much greater degree in the one, the, the, the Antichrist who is to come, we already see it playing out in many Antichrists. John is going to give us some specific details of the Antichrists in his midst. He describes them in this way, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. For John, these antichrists were people who had departed from this church. They were, we can call them the secessionists. 
They were false teachers. They had adopted various false teachings, proclaiming them, teaching them, encouraging others to do likewise. And we've already encountered some of those false teachings in John's letter. They, they clearly did not have a right attitude towards sin. They didn't believe in the necessity of confessing sin, it seems. They didn't have a right attitude towards Christ, and they, didn't, they weren't characterized by love for others. And they were teaching others to do likewise, and they had unsettled the faith of this early church, of this congregation. And John says that these are the ones who are who's calling Antichrist. They're the ones who've gone out from among us. And this is a sign that the last hour is now. When we think about these individuals, what we see is that they departed from this church because they never really were rooted in Christ. It wasn't as if they had truly come to faith in Christ for a time, though they gave the appearance of having come to faith in Christ for a time. But John says the reason they went out from us is because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. You see, one evidence of, of a true believer, one uh, one way in which we know that someone is a true believer is that that person endures. You think back, if you've been with us in Sunday school, to the parable of the sower. How many people receive the word with joy, and yet the reality is that not, not all of them will persevere. Not all of them will endure. Not all of them will hold fast to the word, but many of them will depart from the faith for one reason or another. And that's so in this passage, too, with these particular individuals who have departed from this early church. And John wants this early church to understand there, there was a reason they went out from us. They were never really of us. This actually should encourage us. It would have in the moment been very discouraging to them, but it should encourage. And the reason it should encourage is because it's a sign of the fact that God purifies His church. John presents it as though they, it, it was necessary that they should go out from this church. That God in His wisdom would have it that they would not remain forever continuously unsettling the faith of His, his people. And so ultimately, God's refining work, however it played out, however it takes place, God's refining work was seen. And those who were antichrists went out from their midst. Now, it's helpful if we pause and we compare them. And as we go through what John says, we're going to see a contrast. We're going to see a, a picture of comparison between those secessionists, who John has labeled as antichrists, and between those true believers. And as we read it, the things that are said about one group, we can say the opposite about the other and vice versa. Let me go through it and you'll see this. But you have been, and this is verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. This is set in contrast to what he's just said about the Antichrist who went out from us. And so we could say, by comparison, that the true believer is one who doesn't go out from the fellowship of other believers. Now there are some who certainly may depart for a time and then repent and be reconciled and be restored, and we hope for that, we pray for that. We see examples of that in the New Testament. But ultimately, that is a part of endurance, of 
turning and repenting and coming back into the fellowship of the church. And I don't mean to refer to people who might for a season attend one church and then decide to move to another church for one reason or another. I mean those who abandon the faith altogether, who abandon true, faithful Christian practice, who depart from the church either for some church that embraces a false gospel or for no church at all. That's the picture that John gave us in verse 19, and we can look at the opposite and say, well, the true Christian is one who endures. And in the same way, in verse 20, the true Christian is presented as one who has been anointed by the Holy One. That is, that person has received the Holy Spirit. Well, the false convert, the false Christian, the Antichrist, is one who has not, you see. They're not marked by the anointing of the Holy One. And they may claim to have knowledge, but John wants these Christians to understand they are the ones who have knowledge. Those who have embraced the gospel by faith, they're the ones with knowledge, not these people who might claim to have knowledge, but it's knowledge falsely so-called. And as we continue on in verse 21, we see that John encourages this church. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. Here he's expounding upon this idea that they have knowledge. They know the truth. They're not want those who are committed to lies. In contrast, the Antichrist is the liar. He's the, the, he's the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, it, I want to pause here and say something about this confession that Jesus is the Christ. And we'll, we'll say more about this in weeks to come. But this was a central and in, in, in crucial confession in the early church, and it should be for us too. But we need to understand what it means to say that Jesus is the Christ. Think to Mark chapter 8, Peter's great confession, when Jesus said to him, Who do you say that I am? He said, You are the Christ. You can think also to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached, preached his great sermon at Pentecost. In verse 36, he said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, in Acts 9.22, you can see that when Saul, after he was converted, went into Damascus, he reasoned with people seeking to prove to them that Jesus was the Christ. And we see it here, too, that this is a foundational confession of the true believer, that Jesus is the Christ. But it it means much more than just to acknowledge that he's an anointed one, that he's a king from the line of David. It means that we confess indeed that he is God, that he is the Son of God, you see. It means that we recognize his, his equality with the Father, and that he is one with the Father. It means that we recognize that he is the one who had to die for our sins, and the one that, that God raised from the, from the dead. In other words, part of recognizing that He is the Christ is recognizing that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and die and rise. And John is saying that the Antichrist is someone who denies this. Those people who went out from us, what's the problem with them? They don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. There is some defect in their theology, some problem with their confession, whereby they deny the basic truths of the gospel. And that's taken many, many different forms throughout history. 
you see, in, in not many years after John wrote this letter, there, were, um, there was a heresy called Gnosticism that became quite prominent. And in the Gnostic thought, um, they would say different things, but one of the things they said was that uh, Jesus only um, seemed to be the Son of God, but that, that, that God only uh, kind of uh, took on this human man and, and operated within him for a time, but departed from him before he went to the cross. And that's just one version of it, and there were endless variations of these kinds of heresies that in some way, shape, or form denied the central message of the gospel. Did not, and you can just express it in a shorthand, as John does, denied that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who came, who died, who rose, the one who ascended and is at the right hand of the Father, the one who is fully man and yet fully God. All of those are aspects of true Christian doctrine that John will lay out for us in this letter and that we have received through the years, and yet these are things that are frequently denied and have been denied by many for 2,000 years. That is a hallmark of one who is an antichrist. This kind of denial of the faith received from the apostles and passed down through the generations. Who is the liar, therefore, he says? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. The two things are equivalent to deny that Jesus is the Christ is ultimately a denial of the Father and the Son. It's a denial of the one true God. And by comparison, the true believer is one who embraces these things, one who confesses these things, one who believes those things in his mind and in his heart. No one who denies the Son, he says, has the Father. But whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Excuse me. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you then, he goes on to say, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And so John gives us this contrast. True believers are those who persevere through trials, those who have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, those who have true knowledge that they've received in the gospel, and those who confess the Son and therefore have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And John's purpose in all of this is to encourage us to continue to abide in Him, to abide in Christ and to abide in this message, to let this confession abide in us. It's another way to put it. Or, if I could say it in a different language, to remain steadfast, to remain steadfast in our confession and to remain steadfast in our faith. It's so important to understand that so much of the Christian faith is about holding fast to what we have heard and received we often think that we need to learn all kinds of new and unknown truths. And we must be continually learning. But we are never really moving on to different things. This is one of the problems with the Antichrist, the secessionists. They devised novel doctrines and novel practices, new commandments that were unrelated to genuine faith. But the true believer is one who holds fast to that which he has received. So John tells us, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And you recall that this is just a theme that John has been unfolding throughout his letter, the very opening words of this letter. That which was from the beginning, he speaks about Christ. And again in 1 John 2, 7, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the word you have heard. And again, in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 2, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. John is stamping his foot. He's making this abundantly clear. The message that these Christians had received from the apostles is the message that they're to hold fast to. It's not changing. It's not new. It's been the same since it was first delivered. And that's what we're to hold fast to. Earlier today, I was listening to Mozart's 12 Variations on uh, a tune that we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. I know my wife and Hetty were talking about this after church, and it, uh, it seemed to me a good illustration for this. Because you, you think of that, that song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. It's a children's lullaby. It's a simple song, and yet Mozart took that theme, that song, and he wrote all of these beautiful variations that, that uh, uh, really made this, this theme come to life in such a beautiful way. It makes you say, wow, this is not just a children's lullaby. This is a beautiful piece of classical music, and yet all through it, it's just one variation after another on the same theme. In your life as a Christian, you will always feel as, hopefully, you'll always feel as if you're growing, as if you're learning, as if you're acquiring more and more knowledge. But in that process, I hope that it feels also like variations on the same theme. That you're seeing the same thing over and over again in a more beautiful, more wonderful way. We're always preaching the same gospel. And we're just showing it from many different places. We're always reading the same truths of God's grace and God's love and, and God's holiness and His righteousness as we go through all the pages of Scripture. Even this morning, we looked at a genealogy and we saw the gospel proclaimed in that genealogy. It's just one more variation on the same theme. But when someone comes along and they start teaching and preaching some kind of new and novel doctrine that no one's ever heard before. That is interesting. It speaks to the spirit of the age. It seems to tickle the ears of people in the current moment. They have this new and novel doctrine, and this is the, this is the solution to all our problems, and this is the, uh, the magic elixir that's going to make everything right in our life. If you just follow this 12-step process, or you just know this information that no one's ever heard before, alarm bells should be ringing. Say, I am not hearing the tune that I have become so used to. But when you hear a variation on that same tune, you say, that is beautiful. Because what, it resonates in your heart, and you know, this is the gospel that I've received and believe and hold fast to. That's what John wants these, these people to understand, these Christians to understand. They're to let the same confession abide with them and to grow in them and to mature in them. And it doesn't mean that you just keep saying the same words over and over and over again because the gospel we, we've received is something of such extraordinary wonder that we will spend the rest of our lives seeking to understand it and studying it and contemplating it and meditating upon it, letting it remain in us. And we'll never grow tired of it. Let us not depart from it. That's the warning. And so you start to see then why John can say to these early Christians that you have knowledge and this 
confession that you've received, it already abides in you and you don't need any teachers. They already know what's true. They don't need to be taught something new because of these false teachers. They need to be reminded of what they already know because of these false teachers. And that's what John is saying to them. Now, he's not suggesting that they don't need any teaching whatsoever. After all, John's writing a letter to them that's teaching them. There's a hint of irony to this. And it maybe reflects what's in the background with these false teachers is that there is a desire to be taught by people who would seem to be wise in this age, to have the wisdom of the world. And here John is saying, you don't need teachers. You've been anointed. You have the Holy Spirit. What What other teachers do you need? But that's not to say that there's no room for pastors or even, in this case, apostles. Simply to say that they they don't need to go and find uh, newfound teachers who are going to deliver them these uh, foolproof methods and these ideas and these novel doctrines that are going to ultimately unsettle them and lead them astray. They have what they need. They have received the gospel. They have the word. They have the trustworthy word as taught, and they're to hold fast to it. That's John's message in the last hour. And it's the message that we also need to hear as we live in the last hour. But as we hear that message, we also need to hear words of encouragement. And here I remind you of verse 21. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. And then again in verse 26 and 27, you hear the echoes of those encouraging words that we read in verse 12 through 14, where John was giving all of these reasons for why he's writing to them. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. As John calls them to abide in Christ, as he calls them to remain in him, by remaining true to the confession that they've, they've made, remaining true to the gospel they've received, he encourages them that they have what they need to do this. They've received the Spirit of God. They've been anointed. They have the word and the knowledge that they need. They know and they believed. And the Spirit instructs them. And therefore, John can say these words just as the Spirit has taught you, abide in Christ. And they can receive it, and we can receive it, not as those who say, how do I do that? But as those who say, I can do that, because God has given me all that I need in order to endure. So let us receive these words also, by holding fast our confession, by steadfastly living in light of that confession, as John has been teaching us by living lives that are marked by confession of sin and faith in Christ and love for one another. And in that way, we will remain faithful through this last hour until the coming of our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, O Lord, that you would hold us fast, that you would enable us to persevere in faithfulness through this present hour through this evil age. We know, Lord, that you are faithful and that you are strong and you are able, that you have sent your Spirit to dwell within us, that you have given us 
the Spirit, and you have given us the truth so that we may be found in you, that you may be in us. And so we know that we are able to persevere, not in our own strength, but in the strength that you provide. And so we also pray, Lord, that you would keep us faithful to the end. Let these words sink deep into our hearts and into our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.